0: Hello, hello, welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. So, whenever I get a chance to talk to attorneys that are actually changing our world for the better, I am in awe. Because, as some of you know, I did go to law school and graduate and pretty much did nothing with the degree. My parents are very happy about that. So, today I got a chance to talk to Premo Daria who is the executive director of the Institute to End Mass Incarceration at Harvard Law School. Mic drop. She has spent the last 20 years dedicated to challenging injustice in the criminal system and has spent 15 years as a public defender, another mic drop, in various places such as the Public Defender Service in D.C., the Office of the Federal Public Defender in Baltimore., And, you know, the military commission at Guantanamo Bay. She also founded the Defender Impact Initiative, which is reimagining the role of public defenders as systemic change agents. She is fantastic. I learned so much in 48 hours researching. I felt like I went to law school again. I hope you guys enjoy my interview with Bremel Daria. Well, congrats. You are joining Harvard Law School as the inaugural ED of the Institute to End Mass Incarceration. Um, And I believe this is launching now? Yep. That's amazing. So throughout my my research the past 24 hours, (laughs) reading all about it, I read that the mission is to end mass incarceration in the United States and I kind of wanted to start with the basics of mass incarceration. I think all of us have heard about it through the news. We have an idea that it's a problem but don't know what that means. So just for my audience, the term mass incarceration Mm -hmm. refers to the unique way the U.S. has locked up a vast population in federal and state prisons, Mm -hmm. as well as local jails. And over, what, the past 30, 40 years, the U.S. has put in place some crazy policies and practices that pretty much attempt to address crime through this harsh punishment rather than prevention or rehabilitation. So I assume... This is what you are working on, is to focus on prevention and
1: rehabilitation. What do we need to know? Sure. I mean, you know, I could talk about this for days, so I will keep it short. Um, basically, you know, what we've done in the United States is create this massive web of a system that um, touches people in their communities and homes through surveillance, probation and parole and all kinds of, you know, what we call supervision. Um, And of course, also incarcerates people, removing them from their communities and homes and families and putting them in jails and prisons. And so we have this huge network um, of institutions and structures that punish people um, in an attempt to solve what are basically social problems that we have totally neglected um, and failed to solve, right? Um, so, you know, there are there are deep roots to these problems and to these structures that we've built. Um, those roots then have, you know, become worse and worse by policies we've enacted over the last several decades. Um, and the result of that is that we have millions of people who are suffering and who we're harming. You know, just to give an example in terms of numbers, Um, the United States right now criminalizes and incarcerates more of its own people than any other country in the history of the world. In 2018, more than 10.7 million people entered U.S. jails and prisons. Um, That's the equivalent of locking up every single person in Portugal, Greece, or Sweden. Did you Uh, say 10.7? Yes, um, 10.7 million. I thought I
0: read somewhere in 2016,
1: it was 2.2. So there are a couple of different kinds of numbers, right? There's, okay. there's a, the sort of around 2 million is the number of people that right now, today, on any given day, are incarcerated in the United States. Okay. Um, in the number I just gave, the, in 2018, um, that 10.7 million number is about how many people entered U.S. jails and prisons that year. So people enter, but then often all cycle out, right? So one of the things that we learned about, particularly during COVID, um, when, you know, prisons and jails were real hotspots of infections, right, was that what we were seeing was that in jails, you know, people were really cycling in and out because of these sort of silly institutions and structures that we've developed in which, say, you get arrested. It might be two or three days before you even see a judge to be heard about whether you should be released or not, right? And then often people are released, but they have been sitting in a jail for, you know, two or three days um, unnecessarily. And so th- those numbers add up, right? Of people kind of entering and coming out, entering and coming out, because the way we, we're doing things doesn't make any sense. Quick question on that. You mentioned that we put
0: these systematic rules and laws in place. Was this based on this tough on crime policy in the 80s and 90s, like the war against drugs? And it kind of became a
1: political show of strength to put more people in jail. Absolutely, that's a huge part of it. You know, I think historically we could go back, you know, we could go back much further and talk about the roots of our country and the legacy of slavery. You know, and all of those pieces are really important. The sort of history of racism and white supremacy, um, all of that stuff is is built into the system, the criminal legal system as it exists now. Right. Um, Building on those kind of fundamentals, Uh, A lot of the policies of the last several decades, including the war on drugs, including kind of politicians, you know, jockeying to see who could be the so-called toughest on crime um, and including also media narratives and, you know, how people talk about um, harm in communities, you know, how fear gets stoked Um, as a, you know, it's part of that same political process. Um, it all kind of plays together, but a lot of that really, you know, the, the establishment of mandatory minimums, the, you know, all of these pieces kind of flowed together to really, um, make the numbers skyrocket, uh, with how many people we've been incarcerating. And this is
0: obviously a loaded question and I'm sure it could be a whole podcast, but the prisoners are disproportionately black and Latino right? So the system is biased at every level. How did this start? Like, How do, how do you even begin to tell that story mm-hmm. of this, uh, this bias
1: against people of color? Yeah. I think, I mean, right, this is the central question. And, and I think first and foremost, we have to be real about what we're doing. And we have to be honest about who we're locking up. And, you know, what that means about who we are and how we approach our societies and our communities and how we purport to take care of people and right. protect each other. Um, so that's one piece. But I think that, you know, the question that it really begs is, is why are we doing this? Because, you know, if you start to tackle that question of why we're doing it, it, it sort of also then addresses the other question. Um, because when you start to realize that we're doing this, not because it's useful or effective or productive, right. um, not because it keeps us safer, because it doesn't. Um, you know, in fact, studies have shown that that detaining people pre-trial makes them more likely to have future contact with the criminal legal system. Um, like It doesn't keep us safer. Um, and so when we talk about why we're doing this, you know, the, the roots of it really are about social control and racism. And, and when we start to acknowledge that those things are just built into every single thing that we're doing. Uh, when we prosecute and incarcerate people, then it becomes much clearer why the impact is disproportionately on poor people of color.
0: What's the percentage uh, of color, people of color that are incarcerated right now versus white people? Yeah, I
1: think it's a great question, and I you know it sort of differs by demographic. um there's no question that that black people in our country are absolutely disproportionately more impacted by the criminal legal system than other demographics. But then also when we talk about, say, Latino people, there's chronic underreporting of the impact of um, our system of mass incarceration on Latino populations. Part of that's about how we handle immigration and immigration detention, but part of it's not, and it's just about how we're talking about who's in our jails and prisons. There's also, and particularly you know, of interest potentially to your listeners, um, there's also some really interesting Stuff that's been coming out that helps us understand other categories of people. So Asian Pacific um, Islanders, for example, the AP community, um, are often not recognized at all uh, specifically when we talk about demographic categories. So the boxes will say like Black, you know, Hispanic or Latino, and then Other. Right. So, like we often don't even know. And and you know, in parts of California, in in parts of our country, there are huge numbers of Asian Pacific Americans who are incarcerated or you know, impacted by the system. And and we're not even tracking that. We don't even know those numbers um, in some ways. So, you know, there's a lot to Why learn. Why is that? I, great question. I, you know, I think, okay. I think partly because no one has demanded these kinds of answers, right? Like we historically, our society has kind of gone along with like, Oh, right. We have this system. It makes sense. It's what we do. And we need to start pushing back and demanding answers and then you wrote
0: an op-ed for Washington Post about the Biden administration and, and kind of what steps they need to take. Would you
1: mind kind of summarizing what you said? President Biden campaigned on a desire to to you know change how we do things when it comes to mass incarceration and the criminal legal system. He campaigned on promises of criminal justice reform. And I think a really important opportunity to s- tackle some of that is through... Um, appointments and you know decisions about who we put into the roles. We have this, like I was saying, this big network, this web of right. institutions and actors. We have judges, we have prosecutors, we have all these people who make decisions every day, um, really important ones that determine how we do these things. And those people could be people that cared and that wanted to put an end to this. Um, and so I think Biden has a tremendous opportunity. Um, to, you know, appoint judges who have, for example, backgrounds as public defenders who have been thinking about these issues for a long time um, with a desire for change. Um, and similarly, there's a, an opportunity to appoint U.S. attorneys around the country who, you know, are are seeking to, to reduce the harmful impact that prosecutors have had. Right. And I think you were focusing on Maryland mm-hmm. in that article. That's right. Okay. I used to, I used to, practice as a public defender, as a, an assistant federal public defender in Maryland. Yeah, you
0: have. I looked at your your career. I was like, you have done some really interesting stuff. Okay, but first, I would like to know more about the Institute uh, to End Mass Incarceration. How did
1: that come together? Like, who is it? Is it like a think tank? Yeah, I hope it's different than anything that currently exists. So it sounds like yeah. it. Uh, I'm really excited about it. You know, as you mentioned earlier, we're just kind of in our launch phase right now. Um, Our website just went live last week, so we're pretty excited about um, what's to come. Um, uh, So it started, you know, through, frankly, a series of informal conversations with a former colleague of mine who was a former public defender in Washington, D.C., alongside me. Um, Professor Andrew Crespo, who now teaches at Harvard Law School, okay, um, and and I and he and I had sort of a you know we've been friends for a long time and had a number of conversations about these issues and kind of how we thought that real change might happen and and what role we might be able to play in that. And I had started a nonprofit a couple of years ago um, called Defender Impact Initiative that was very much grounded in my own career experience and really interested in thinking about the role that public defenders could play in making systemic change. So public defenders kind of, you know, they represent individual people um, in the system. And I really wanted to think about how to tap into that expertise and tap into that kind of insight and um, bridge the sort of silos that exist between a lot of the other actors, you know, advocates, policymakers, uh, organizers in the movement and public defenders. And so right. the organization that I you know, started was doing that kind of work. And Andrew and I had similar ideas about some of those issues. And so the more we talked, the more it became clear that we should really join forces. And, um, and so we were able to, to create a new institute. That's, that's housed at Harvard Law School, um, the Institute to End Mass Incarceration. And we've been building and planning and developing and strategizing for the last several months. Um, And, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be really exciting. The, the institute itself is going to have a few different components. Um, there is a research component. So, you know, really tapping into the ability to be at a place like Harvard University, right? And to, to have this sort of massive community of thinkers and um, people who are doing cutting-edge research and work. Um, and to, to add to that, right? To bring right. In people that we know in the in the broader field. Um, and, And then the Institute's also going to have an advocacy and organizing component, which the work that I had been doing is going to get folded into, uh, which I'm really excited about. Within that part of the Institute, there's going to be a law school clinic. So Andrew and I are going to be co-teaching a clinic this fall for law students at Harvard. um, And and their work will be kind of a central part of the advocacy work that we build out as well. So that'll be a really cool way. You know, we're, we're really... Thinking about shaping the next generation of lawyers, right? These are law students who are going to go out into the world and and have tremendous power and capacity to make big change. And so, to the extent that we can start, you know, planting seeds of these kinds of things, that's our that's our hope. And then, lastly, um, but not least, the we're going to have a sort of innovation component. We're really hoping to foster brainstorm. You know, bringing some fellows and bringing people doing kind of cool who have cool new ideas and approaches and to give people some space and capacity to really dig in and talk to each other and hear from each other. And as part of that, we launched, um, last week, a, a brand new online publication. Um, it's called inquest and it is, uh, the tagline is quite literally a decarceral brainstorm. Um, and we're, you know, we're featuring essays from people across the fields, um, across the field. So, you know, community organizers, lawyers, um, Policymakers, scholars, um, people who are incarcerated now, people who've been formerly incarcerated, um, really trying to get a variety of voices sharing, sharing ideas, sharing thoughts about how we got here, what's happening now, and how do we get out of this? How do we move forward? Right. So, so interesting. I have so many questions.
0: First, was Harvard the goal? Were you trying to start an institute there, or do they come to you guys? And second. How do you decide who you're going to work with? I mean, it feels like there's such a vast variety of people that probably work in the field. And then the third question is, I don't mean to be funny here, but would Harvard Law students want to go into the public defender's office? Or are these guys looking for the private firms?
1: Yeah. So I'll take... Sorry, three-part question. uh, Totally fine. I'll take those (laughs) in turn. So first, I mean, because Andrew Crespo is currently a professor at Harvard, um, there were a lot of natural synergies. And, um, you know, so that sort of naturally came out of of that relationship and and his role there. And, um, you know, there's also just a variety of people across Harvard University doing really interesting and fascinating work that's complimentary and, you know, sort of touches on a lot of these issues and we're bringing kind of our own approach, but a lot of, but it fits very well into the sort of, you know, um, community of people who are doing a lot of thinking and doing there. Um, So that's, that's part one. In terms of students, you know, I am so impressed with, with the students that I have encountered thus far at Harvard and elsewhere, but, but even, you know, I've I've now met many of them and, uh, or at least talked to them and. People are so eager to change the world, you know, and, and to get out there. They're so um, like eyes wide open about so much of the injustice that exists. And while there will always be people who want to go to the, to the big private firms, um, it's, it's really fairly competitive actually, to be able to make your way into the public defender offices and to do this work um, because there's, there's a, 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 Vibrant community of people who really want to be doing this. So it's has it's this changed
0: very... over the years? I feel like
1: that wasn't the way it was
0: 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, I really think it has. I mean, I think, you know, of course, our country has been in this sort of very public national reckoning for the past couple of years um, around racial injustice and the true systemic, you know, problems that we face. And I think that that has absolutely affected students and their desires to sort of play a role in. Making a difference moving forward. Um, I think law students in particular can use their law degrees in such important ways when it comes to criminal legal system change. You know, we, you know, we need lawyers to be doing good work in this way because it's it's impossible to navigate the system in some ways otherwise. And so, um, yeah. So I think it's I do think it's changing, and I and I think it's really changing for the better in terms of. Um, wanting to make good good change.
0: Maybe it was just our generation that, that needed the private, besides you, of course. I went to law school, just mm-hmm. FYI, a long time ago.
1: And it was- it Retired
0: was a long time ago.
1: <laughs> different than what I'm
0: describing. <laughs> yes, yes. <Yeah. laughs> and then the second question was, how do you decide who to work with?
1: Oh, yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things that, that uh, makes our- Institute a little different than some of the others is that we very much understand and believe that, you know, we are not going to be the ones who like end anything like, you know, the two of us, nor any team like within Harvard Law School. And, And what we really want to do is support the people who are leading in communities Um, who we think will ultimately be the ones to make the kind of sustainable, durable change in their communities, which is where the big change will come from. Um, And so we believe very much in supporting community organizers and in helping to build power in communities so that people can determine how how to make the change and how to... How to you know, set their own future. So I shouldn't be deciding, for example, right, what the what happens in communities across the country. People who live there um, on the ground should be. And so we really want to be um, playing a very supportive and um, power building role with, with organizations, with local grassroots organizers. Um, and so a lot of that is about um, building relationships, getting to know people, getting to know what is needed and wanted, um, getting to know what issues people are facing. And so, you know, that's a that's an ever-evolving process.
0: That's amazing. Kind of like have a home for mm-hmm. everyone that
1: can get together in a weird way, think tank. In totally. well, like, yeah, we really, I mean, we do hope to be um, like very much a space that fosters conversation, right. and, you know, growth and sharing, um, and all of that. And, and we also have this educational component because of we're in a university. And so, you know, I think that there's a way in which we can be supportive and help to replicate good ideas and that sort of thing, you know, um, help to amplify good ideas and good work and, and, and support them. And then what about
0: you? Like, how do you foresee your role? What do you
1: expect? Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, you know, this is this is my goal. Um, I'm pretty I'm pretty thrilled this for me. This is the this is, you know, a culmination of years of doing work in different parts of and around this system as a public defender, as a civil rights litigator, you know, as someone who was sort of thinking about research and advocacy outside of the courtroom um, and bringing all of that together under one roof. Um, is just a tremendous opportunity. So I'm so excited about it. And um, I, you know, I anticipate that it will just keep growing and um, get, you know, strengthening and um, building partnerships and relationships. And, and I'm really excited to see that happen. Well, it seems like you've been working
0: towards this for, what, 20 years or so? So I yeah. wanted to ask you a little bit more about your career. You know, public defender offices have reputations... And again, I think it's changing, but to be underfunded, the idea is that public defenders don't have time to prepare cases. They're not real lawyers. The sides seem very unbalanced. Sorry. So one has that changed? And then two, why did you go that route?
1: Yeah. Um, I, so I do think it's changing. Um, there's no question that, you know, public defense is absolutely in a resource crisis across our country. Um, We don't prioritize funding public defense. We should. Um, I think it's a real, I think it's really misguided, um, on behalf of people who have the power to, to do otherwise. Um, to not better fund public defenders so so that's a that's just real and it does lead to lots of defenders being overworked and under-resourced and sort of you know over capacity in terms of how many people they're representing or how much they can do um, okay. and you know um, in addition to to you know being flagrantly against what the constitution calls for um, is just it's just uh, problematic in a hundred ways um, so there's that that said, you know, I you know, I was a public defender for almost 13 years in a few different places, and it's it's like it's the best job. I mean, it's just an incredible role to be able to play, standing beside um, a person who is probably in the worst situation of their lives, right? And helping to navigate through this horrible system that just punishes relentlessly and that doesn't care about people. And helping people to find the best possible way out of it, even if it's not ideal or perfect, but but playing that advocate role um, is just is just an incredible privilege. And I, I mean, I, I could not have ever asked for a better job. Um, That's amazing. Good for you. Oh, thanks. Has there been a particular case that has stuck with you throughout the years? Oh, so many of them. I mean, I've represented you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds right. of people at this yeah. point. Um, and um, and just so many tremendous people who are so strong and um, resilient and funny and you know smart and all the things. So I I have memories of so many clients that I will never forget. And I feel as a result also that I got to see the sort of underbelly of this system, and I got to witness what happens in real time to people's lives and families and you know well being as a result of the system. And I feel very obliged to continue working against it in, in whatever way I can. Just random question.
0: Have you ever
1: had to defend a South Asian client? Oh, that's a great question. I don't think I have, no. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Just curiosity so. since, you know, I'm think so. a South Asian audience. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong, but I really don't think so. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Talk to me about Defender Impact Initiative, which you founded in 2019.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that was you know, uh, there's I've sort of mentioned this kind of broadly, but like there are a lot of people out there who care very much about these issues, right? right. Who, who want it, who've dedicated their careers or lives to fighting against mass incarceration, and a lot of the people doing this work are are doing it in silos there are, you know, there's public defenders and then there's there's sort of people who do policy work and there's community organizers. And a lot of times these different silos don't interact with each other. And I found in my work that there were lots of community organizers and activists who are just so, you know, advanced in their strategizing and thinking about how to make systems change. And I really thought that public defenders could benefit from learning more about those conversations and also that they could benefit more from hearing public defenders talk about like the nitty gritty of how stuff works, right? Like if you're, say you're making a new policy to sort of make some kind of reform, like the people that we should be asking, like, will this work are public defenders? They understand how the law does and doesn't work every day. And and we're often not asking public defenders for that kind of insight. And it's a real it's a real mistake. Um, I think, you know, you kind of touched on it earlier. I think people have these impressions. Um, and then also public defenders don't have a lot of extra time and energy to be doing extra work. Right. So, so there's that, but I, but I really think that there's a missed opportunity for everybody, um, to be learning from each other. And also just, I mean, we'd move the ball farther, faster if we were talking more about, about all of these things. Are public defenders getting paid better nowadays?
0: Because the reputation obviously is that Financially, they they just don't
1: get what they deserve. I don't think they get what they deserve. Not nearly. Uh, I think in so much of the country, they're woefully underfunded and underpaid. Yeah. You know, I was very lucky and worked in offices that were well-resourced and didn't have that issue, Uh, but that's not true for most public defenders in the country. Because
0: you were in the Mm D.C. office, Mm -hmm. Baltimore as well, and then in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, yeah. So that's how was how was Cuba? How was that experience?
1: You know, as depressing as you might imagine. um, The I was I was essentially defense counsel on a couple of teams representing people who were charged in the military commission. Wow. Um, So yeah, it's. so are you still working with Defender Impact Initiative? Okay. So that work essentially got brought into and folded into the work of the Institute. So I am like all of the strategies and ideas that were fueling that work. We're just going to, we're just going to do nice. that. The Institute. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah.
0: And so do you think, I, I think you kind of touched on it, but you think nowadays and maybe previously as well, public defenders must be part of this change. They have to be involved in it. And and you you mentioned that most public defenders actually
1: really care.
0: Okay, yeah,
1: I think I think they really do, and I think um, there's so much potential there to tap into people who care that much um, to to make change. And I absolutely believe the public defenders have to be part of the change. Um, you know, I think I think we can. You know, at the institute, we're going to be doing you know a variety of efforts that are focused on public defenders and thinking about how public defenders can, can be more of the change um, But I, I, I think there's a fairly unlimited potential there. It's pretty exciting.
0: And I don't know if there's an easy way for you to answer this or sum it up, but what are the first steps to end mass incarceration? What do we need to start doing?
1: Yeah. Great question. Um, and it's a very long list. So I'll give right. you a few things that we've been thinking about. You know, one is, as I mentioned earlier, is really thinking about what it means to build power in communities. And so part of, you know, from our perspective, part of what that means is supporting community organizers who understand their communities, who understand what needs to happen in their communities um, and, and helping them to be able to do what they need to do. Um, part of it is thinking about democracy and, um, and how we preclude people from participating meaningfully in in all parts you know, of, of society, but also really in particular in the criminal legal system. This is meant to be a system, you know, purportedly that's that's for all of us and that protects us and keeps us. In. And, you know, we we don't we don't build it. We have not built it based on people's actual desires or needs, um, you know, we literally tear people away from their families and incarcerate them. I don't think that that's what people would ask for if they were asking right. to keep their families and communities healthy and safe. Um, right. So, so figuring out what are the, what are the opening points? What are the pathways for people to be able to actually voice what their communities want to need to feel safe and feel healthy um, and to have the space to thrive? Um, I think is really important. And that fundamentally is about democracy, right? It's about, it's about what are these institutions for who are right. they for? Um, And who gets to say? And so we want to figure out how to, you know, radically democratize um, this, not in a way for people to sort of be more involved in overseeing the system, but in intervening in it and saying, actually, this doesn't work for us, right? This is not what's good for our community. Um, So that's a big part of it.
0: Right. Do you have any idea, I guess, percentage wise, how many of these people that are incarcerated how many go back into prisons and then how many have mental health issues?
1: As I, as I said, I used the word social problems earlier, the phrase social problems earlier, but like a lot of what we're doing here, right. Is covering up our complete neglect of, of social problems. Like the system provides cover in some ways for us, not actually addressing um, you know, healthcare needs and um, employment right. needs, and all of these other things. There's, so there's a there's a vast spectrum of needs that are totally unmet by our government, um, including you know housing, including employment, including um, uh, family stability in terms of you know finding ways to keep families together, in terms of you know medical care and mental health care, uh, substance use disorder care. I mean, there's so many pieces there, and so of course, like those things factor in. And they both cause and are caused by. Um, there's this cycle right. um, the criminal legal system, so that's definitely part of it. And then, in terms of you know, kind of the the cycle of people coming in and out, um, I think that this is a this is a really complex issue. Not because um, not because it's true that that happens, but but I think we often you know as a society don't totally understand why, and the media often frames. A lot of those um, the media will often say, you know, oh, so and so got released and then went right back in. And people assume that it's because they potentially like committed some new harm um and often that's not the case at all right we've created this whole web of supervision and rules and regulations and so people often when they go back in are going in because of some technical violation right or because they like missed a curfew or the ankle monitor battery died or i mean there's you could make right. up a list of like the most absurd reasons that we would incarcerate someone and 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 this is how the system is built and so there's it's a it's just a little complicated to talk about that kind of cycle without also addressing the fact that like you know, the reasons this is happening um, are, are not so straightforward. Totally random again, but
0: I've had a lot of interviews recently where critical race theory came up.
1: Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think, it's, I think it's important that we study it. I think it's important that people be allowed to study it. I think it's important to support um, this. You know, I, I was sort of getting at this earlier, but there's just no way to disentangle to white supremacy and racism from the entire system that we've created. There's no way it is. Built well, you, you studied it. So. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's built on it and it replicates it. It reproduces it. Right. Like it's just, I mean, we have to start being real about what we're doing. Um, if we want to move forward. Face it. Okay. I got to ask you some fun
0: Brown Indian questions. Okay. So you're obviously an attorney. Uh, Did you grow up in a traditional South Asian household? Mom and dad wanted you to become a doctor,
1: lawyer? I did. Um, You know, my dad's a doctor. My parents, my parents immigrated from India in the like late seventies, mid to late seventies. My dad's a doctor. And um, yeah, yes. All of this, all of the, all of the above expectations you might imagine uh, were present and, uh, Um, and you know, many of my cousins are, are doctors and, um, engineers and, um, and so that, that expectation continued. Um, so yeah. Continue to our kids (laughs) too. So were you allowed to date
0: growing up? No, no, no. (laughs) Neither, neither did it was I, don't worry. They're like, don't date, but then get married.
1: I'm like, how does that
0: work? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you went to Brown University. Mm-hmm. So why the degree in history and African American studies? Because that's very unique for South
1: Asians to study. I'm really interested in racial injustice. I sort of I think I'll back up for one second and just say one more piece about my childhood, which is relevant. Well, yeah. Which is that I my parents, when I was uh maybe two or three, moved to rural West Virginia. And I was born there. Really? Well, Charleston. We lived in Charleston for two years, but, um, gosh, it was, it was like eighth grade, eighth grade and ninth grade for me. So, 1980. Okay. (laughs) Um, but I grew up in Mingo County, uh, which is about two hours South, um, West of Charleston. Um, and yeah, so it's a, it's cold country. And there weren't that many South Asians around, um, you know, that we had our little, there's a small community. Um, and we, and we became very close. Um, like how many? Oh, maybe like four or five families. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were like family with each other. Um, right. But, you know, a lot of what that experience did for me was really formative in that, like, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty, you know, low-income town. And a lot of what I saw felt very much like the result of, like, quite literally being isolated from other parts of the country. You know, we lived in this valley Um, and like, you couldn't even, there was no highway to get out. Like we didn't, like, you couldn't go anywhere. (laughs) Like, you know, it took forever to like get out of town. And, and so this sort of very physical isolation, you know, leads, leads to like real alienation. It leads to, it leads to disenfranchisement, you know, of all different kinds. And, um, seeing that kind of, um, those dynamics early, I think made me like alerted me to where they might exist elsewhere. And so when I started to read about, you know, the history of of racism in the United States and and how all of that developed, um, a lot of that felt really, you know, some of those themes resonated. Um, and so yeah. I became really interested and also just became really interested in how those themes kind of, you know, I focused on comparative postcolonial studies. Um partly because I can being really obsessed with, like, the British Empire's, you know, evil, Um and, like, was really interested in thinking about that. But it's so, there's so many similarities between power structures um throughout history. Um, yeah. Places, so.
0: Well, that's super interesting that you grew up in that area. Because I feel like a lot of South Asians grow up in big cities, and they have a bubble of their South Asian crew.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So a lot of us don't get out of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm sure that was a big imp- impact for you. Talk to me more about your comparative post-colonial studies, because I think in all my episodes, everyone on my South Asian guests, <laughs> they're like post-colonialism. That's the problem. That's why everything's messed up right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you studied it. So, Summarize it for me. Why are we still being affected by it?
1: Sure. You know, I think there. So colonialism is inherently this structure, this extractive structure, right, in which like there's a powerful force that extracts wealth, um, and it's often tied to race and 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 color. And at root, it's about money and power too. Right. Um, and the, so those things converge. And once you sort of sort of see that analysis, it's hard to ever unsee it, right? Like, it's hard to ever unsee that, like, India <laughs> had its wealth extracted so, so dramatically for so long, um, and the effects of that are not, you know, they're, they're persistent, obviously, and they're so widespread and deep, um, and that's true of so many countries, and it's also true of, like, of power structures in the United States, right, like slavery and and the power structures that got built after Jim Crow, I mean, all of it is, there are themes of extraction and racial capitalism that flow through all of these different approaches to empire and power. Right. And I think it's really fascinating to connect those dots and, and to, to see the similarities because it will, because it's fascinating for its own sake, but also because we're not going to be able to move forward until we understand how we got here and why.
0: No, I mean, totally. So my last interview or so, my guest was mentioning that he thought one of the worst things that came out of colonialism for, for brown people is that we were taught that there's not enough room for all of us, right? Like that not all of us could make it to the top. And it still affects brown people today. We're so competitive with each other, we don't support each other as much as we should and i feel like that could be a result a little bit of that i mean culture and and all that stuff as well but what do you think about those thoughts
1: yeah that they're like it fosters this sort of isolation and competitive right right dynamic um absolutely i mean i think right fundamentally it it undermines the notion of community um and an actual supportive community where where we care about each other's well-being and and want each other to succeed. Um, and so I think I think actually part of what is so beautiful about the work that we're hoping to do at the Institute in terms of power building in communities is that it fights back against that in sort of the most basic way, right? Like we want communities to feel good, to be powerful, to support each other, to thrive, right? Um, and, and what better way to take down some of those oppressive systems than to just do it right? Definitely. And how can people find out more about the
0: institute. I don't know, is there a way for people to get involved or yeah, there's a
1: there's a few ways. Um so we have our website which is live now. Um and there's tons of detail in the website about the work and kind of our values and thinking about all this stuff. So, you know, if you're interested, you should totally dig around there and, and take a read. Um contact info is on the website also. It's endmassincarceration.org. Okay. So, it's very easy to remember. Um and anyone should feel free to reach out for sure. Um, we also have Inquest, which is this online publication, and there's a submissions portal. Cool. You know, if people are interested in, in you know submitting, we'd certainly welcome submissions. Um, but also, just take a read. Um, we're we're really proud of the initial slate of content that went up last week. It's just been you know some of the really most analytical and exciting thinkers who are doing some of those cutting edge work. Um, that we featured. And so um, I encourage people, they're short essays. They're not super long reads. Um, and so it's accessible. Um, encourage people to take a look around and and get involved through reading, learning, and also just reach out anytime.
0: I feel like I learned a lot just in the past 24 hours. I knew nothing. So, and I will put that all in my notes. Anything I missed?
1: No, wow, this is great. This is so cool.
0: I mean, there's a ton more. I don't want to take too much of your time, um, but thank you. Man, I feel like I need a part two to that interview. Just so much more to learn on such a massive topic. Guys, if you're interested or have questions for Bremel, you can reach out via LinkedIn, Bremel Daria, I will also link her websites in my notes, and I am off to Nashville for podcast movement. Yes, podcasters have conferences. Stop laughing. Actually, my panel is called Mommies in Podcasting, so I get to talk about mommyhood for an hour. Totally can do that. Also, guys, I finally started my newsletter. Woohoo! Well, it was my intro to my newsletter. So please, please sign up. The link is ummytucker.substack.com. I will also link that in my notes. On another side note, August is a bit crazy for me. I have a few trips coming up for work, family. So while I will try to keep up with interviews this month, it's going to be a little bit crazy. But hopefully, I will get you guys some great episodes in August. And in September, we ramp up again. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your support. Sign up for the newsletter. This is Tuckered Out.